welcome to the MindChimp Podcast. Hey Paul, welcome to the MindChimp Podcast. How are we doing? I am doing very well. Thank you very much for inviting me. I feel very honoured. No, no, not at all. It's a pleasure to have you here. So I guess before I jump into who Paul is and, and, and everything about you, Paul, I tend to ask my guests three questions. So mm-hmm. first question, um, when you was in school and the teacher would come up to you back in the day and she'd say, Paul, what is it you want to be when you grow up? What is it you would say to the teacher? Well, I certainly couldn't say web designer because the web didn't exist then. Um, that's how old and decrepit I am. Um, I, I think I wanted I wanted to be a graphic designer really since quite early on. I reckon I was about 11, something like that. And I was always really into art um, and, 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 and that kind of thing. But um, I, I had the problem of I had a really good eye for composition, layout, all of those kinds of things, but I couldn't draw for toffee. Um, so my, unfortunately I had a really good art teacher who, who picked up that I had talent, even though I couldn't draw. Um, and, and she suggested the idea of being a graphic designer. And the minute I found out what it involved, that was it. I was, I was sold. So really I'm doing what I've always wanted to do. Well, less so now, but things evolve, don't they? Anyway, sorry. Yes. Graphic designer. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Okay. And, and what I need you to do for me, please, Paul, is I need you to pick four numbers from one to a um, hundred for me, please. Okay. 27. Okay. 36. Yeah. 42 and 91. Awesome. I will become clear on them. Okay. So, don't ask me to remember what those numbers were. <laughs> no, no, you don't need to. Do not worry. Do not worry. Okay. So I guess um, before you know, before we kind of get into this, I tend to ask my uh, my guests to try and summer up, summarize um, their logline or their summary as however they want to mm-hmm. do it. And what would your mm-hmm. what would your logline be, Paul? Well, I, I, I I'm going to cheat here and just read what it says on my website. Um, which is creating an outstanding user experience that is transformative for your business. I think that pretty much sums up what I do. Okay. Okay. Awesome. So, you know, Paul, I, I've kind of gone back and forth with you on LinkedIn. I follow you, your, your blog posts, your podcasts, etc. But maybe for some of my guests, because this is kind of more learning development, organizational design development, and there's so much overlay. But for my guests who, who maybe don't know who you are, maybe you could give us a bit of a a whistle-stop tour from kind of where you've come from all the way up to where you are right now. Crikey, that could take that could take the whole time. I'm that old and decrepit. <laughs> um, so, so I started off as um, studying graphic design, um, and I was doing a, a, a degree in graphic design where I happened to stumble into, and I really did stumble into it, an internship with IBM. Um, working on their first ever multimedia computers. This this dates me immediately. Um, so their first computer they ever produced with the sound card and the CD-ROM. So um, I was working on all the graphics and the icons and the video around that. Um, uh, and we could do exciting things back then, like stream video from a CD-ROM at 160 pixels by 120 pixels, as long as there wasn't too much vi- movement in the video and as long as um, uh, there was no red in the frame because that would that would choke the bandwidth. Anyway, so that's how I started off. Then towards the end of that internship, um, this thing called the web came along um, and none of the proper grown-up professional designers wanted to touch it with a barge pole because it was deadly dull, you know, grey background, centred text, 
you know, that was about it. Um, but we were getting asked to, to produce it. So what do you do? You give it to the intern, don't you? So that's how I got into the web. Um, stumbled into it that way. Um, I then I went and finished my degree. I spent a few more years with IBM before I um, found out that really large corporate life didn't suit me particularly well. And I jumped ship and went and joined a dot-com company where I went through the, the, the glorious experience of uh, uh, the dot-com roller coaster. Um, so I went from hiring, you know, you know, dozens and dozens of people and expanding the team that I ran endlessly to being told I was going to be a, a, a millionaire by um, a, a New York stockbrokers when we went to Wall Street and, and did the whole kind of NASDAQ uh, flotation. Um, and then to the poverty that comes at the end of that journey. I'm not a millionaire, unfortunately. Um, and then, then from there, I went and set up a, a, um, uh, an agency, which a user experience agency or a di digital design agency, um, which I ran for 13 years. And now I'm an independent consultant. So the kind of work that I basically do is around, um, well, it's, it's around digital transformation. Um, but from the, the angle of, of uh, user experience design. So essentially what I find myself now doing is, is, going, look, you know, in the world we live in today, for, for an organization to be successful, it needs to be customer-centric. You know, users have got unprecedented choice. They've got um, uh, more power than they've ever had before, um, uh, not just to pick whichever product that they want, but also to complain about a product that they don't, want, they don't like. So the result is that we need to be much more user-centric as organizations, and we need to make better use of digital to enable us to do that. Um, so that tends to be most of the work I do these days. So I've kind of moved from design across into consultancy, and that happened very naturally over a period of years because essentially um, I was, as a designer, I was coming up against so many organizational barriers that were stopping change, was stopping me implementing ideas. It might be that a client couldn't deliver content because they had to go through so many different, you know, checks and balances before it could get out. It might have been that they were living with legacy IT systems or whatever the barrier was. And I ended up in slowly interfering in with more and more of those barriers until eventually um, I find myself, you know, looking at organizational change. <laughs> so, I mean, what an absolute journey that must be. So I guess this is kind of a reason why 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 I wanted you on the podcast because you know you bring in so much which kind of overlaps with the learning and an organizational development and design which I kind of fall within. Um mm. and what one of the biggest things which I've kind of been a quite vocal about is um learning development as a as a as a as a team if you like as an industry is is always a tad behind. And that's not yeah. to that's not to go hard on that industry. It just it just is, and put it one way, you know, design thinking is is new to L and D at the moment. Um, mm -hmm. It's like the big buzzword of everything. Um, but I guess one one of the things which I which I've kind of said is like, you know, I think the future of L and L and D as a team should be more around kind of bringing people like service designers, experience designers, and, and, and all these other aspects, because I think that one of the things which has kind of kept me ahead of the curve is by looking at what service design is doing, look what experience design is doing, and whatnot. And I guess that's kind of where, why why I've brought you into that. So, mm. 
I guess what I thought I would do is, before we jump into kind of, you know, some, some knee-deep questions, I thought I'd just throw um, a few words at you, and if you just tell me what comes to mind straight away with these buzzwords, if that works. Okay. I think the one thing I'd, I'd like to say on what you, you just said is that I think that goes both ways, um, because I think there's a lot that... Um, you know, those that are involved in digital transformation, those that are involved in user experience design can learn um, from the learning and development um, sector. Because from, from our point of view, um, one of the biggest challenges we, we face is, okay, we've got this digital knowledge, we've got this digital experience, we've got this understanding of users, yet others within the organization we work with don't have that knowledge. How do we communicate that knowledge to them how do we bring them on this journey as well so i do think it's very much a two-way street but anyway yes back to your random words let's let's do those no we'll definitely pick up on that for sure so i guess um so yeah our ideas and you just come with whatever comes to mind so first word is well it's two digital transformation yeah I've written a whole post on uh, on this what is digital transformation i think there's a lot of misunderstanding around this um, so I think a lot of people think digital transformation is simply implementing or integrating new technologies into your organization. And that is not the case. Um, if you look at almost any definition of digital transformation by anybody that works in the field, it, it's primarily about changes of customer behavior. So, um, uh, so for example, um, uh, if you think about how much our behavior has changed, you know, most of us now, when we wake up in the morning, we pick up our mobile phones and those mobile phones have the entire, you know, the entirety of human knowledge in our pockets, right? Um, so that's changed how we buy, how we research things, how we behave on a day-to-day -day business, so a day-to-day -day basis. So digital transformation is essentially about businesses adapting to changing consumer behavior caused by digital. Um, now, some of the ways that it adapts is by using technology and digital uh, tools, but it's primarily a response to consumer behavior. But anyway, yes, that's that's my definition of digital transformation. Okay, okay. Um, the next one is service design. Yeah, service design, um, for me, it, it's not quite interchangeable with user experience design, but it's damn close. So... Um, it's two sides of the same coin, right? So um, where user experience design says, okay, this is the user experience that we want to create. What needs to change about um, everything in order to be able to deliver that? Everything from the touch points, the points of interface to the backend systems, right? So it works from the user back. Service design is the flip side of that. It says we're going to improve and optimize our back-end services, and that will improve the touch points that the customer has and therefore the customer experience. So one starts with the user, the other starts with um, the business. Both are completely valid. I tend to favor starting with the user, but that's only because that's the background I've come from, you know. So and that's that's the interesting thing about all of this kind of organization change is that there's so many very smart people coming at it from different angles, whether they're coming at it from the HR angle, whether they're coming from change management angle, whether they're coming at it from the, the user experience angle. We've all got something to, to offer. Um, so I don't tend to get too hung up on buzzwords. Okay, and I've got two more. So the next one is experience design. Right, well, I mean, that's essentially what I was just referring to. So it, it's saying 
okay, you, you can do, do it in one of two ways. You can either start with, okay, what's the experience we have today? What are the weaknesses in that experience, that customer's journey? Um, and how can we improve that? And what needs to be done to improve that? Or alternatively, you can say, okay, what do what would the ideal customer experience be like and what is the business we need to design to support that there is a common misunderstanding that user um, experience design and user interface design are the same thing and they're absolutely not um user experience design stops at the sorry user interface design so even i do it user interface design stops at the edge of the screen right it's is interested in those points of of interaction through a digital interface user experience design is everything that impacts the user experience and that's why it intersects quite heavily with service design because i care just as much for example as a user experience designer about how um, a, a customer is invoiced, right? Because that's a part of the experience. Um, so then I start caring about the finance department. You know, there's almost no part of an organization that I don't care about. Okay. Okay. This is great. And the last one is IDEO, the company. Yeah, IDEO, they, they, they've been a, a huge influencing um, factor in a, a lot of... Um, uh, the thinking that comes around it. I'll tell you what they're really good at. They're very good at taking stuff that designers in a range of different companies, and I use designers in the broadest sense. I don't, I'm not talking about people that color stuff in. Um, uh, I, you know, they take things that designers are doing across the industry and they, they, kind of package it up and uh, and m turn it into a methodology and stick a label on it. Um, and, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I mean that in a highly complimentary way because it, they're very good at enabling people to wrap their heads around a concept um, and, and, and present it in a language that the business world can understand. And yeah, so I've got a lot of time for them in that, in that sense. Okay, cool. I'm glad we got into that quite quick. Um because it's going to kind of influence a few other, other questions later on down the line. Sure. But, but I guess before, yeah, I mean, let's let's get a little bit into about Paul and and you know, I I think a lot of times when when whenever when I've built teams in the past, um, we always do this thing where we say, okay, people, you've got to come to an interview and you've got to show your best self, all the things that you've achieved and whatnot. And actually, I think there's more value to ask people actually what's what's a failures. So if I was to say to you, Paul, what would your failure resume or failure CV look like? What what moment jumps out? Um, I think I am terrible at managing people, <laughs> which okay. is why I'm an independent consultant. Um, so for, for a big chunk of my career, I... I did have to manage a lot of people. Um, and I don't think I was ever particularly strong at doing that. Um, uh, so, so I, I, you know, the one instance you asked me for an instance that jumped out is that towards the end of the dot-com company that I ran, um, I made some terrible mistakes towards the end of that. Um, I was quite young to be fair. Um, but, 
you know, I mismanaged that quite heavily. And it was a very difficult time because we were having to fire a lot of people and that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, I, I don't think I handled that particularly well. So that would be a big thing. So I'm not particularly good at, at managing people on a day-to-day basis. I'm also um, not very good with, um, I'm not a details person, right? I'm a big picture person. Uh, which again could be quite frustrating if if you're somebody that works directly for me. So I'm great at getting getting people excited. I'm great at motivating people. I'm great at outlining a vision, um, but I'm not always. I, I, I it's not that I can't do detail, but I lose interest in it. You know, I, I often describe myself as a small toddler. You know, oh shiny thing, and then <laughs> off I go. Um, so I would say those are probably my my two biggest weaknesses. Okay. Okay. So, so I guess what's what's been your most recent personal success? Oh, that's a good question. Um, let me think. Most recent personal success. Um, I think I have. I mean, I always, every time I finish a book, it feels like you've, you've achieved something fairly major, but now I'm like five, five books in, you know, I think that stops having the same impact that maybe it once did. Um, I think transitioning from running an agency to building a lifestyle consultancy business has been a big transition for me. And that, that feels like a big success. Um, but then there's also, uh, you know, client work. The, 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 one of the big things that I've started doing, I know, I've got it. Took me a while. Sorry, you might have to edit that down. Um, so, so one of the big things, one of the things that I introduced which I, um, to my new business is I do this mentorship coaching thing. Because one of the things that really frustrates me about consultants, right, is you, you get a consultant, they come in, they ask a lot of questions, poke around a lot, and then they get, write a report and then they bog off, right? Uh, and, and you're left kind of going, right, okay, now we've got to implement this. And, and that frustrated the hell out of me because that's effectively what, what I'm often asked to do. Um, so I introduced this kind of mentorship scheme where I'm working um, over a period of months with, with an organization where I become like an external member of staff where people can ring me up, they can pick my brains, we can have ad hoc meetings, we, I review documents, just, just like another member of staff, basically. And, and so what that's enabled me to do is kind of get really embedded in companies and start kind of dealing with the, well, yeah, it's great what you wrote in the report, but, you know, how do I deal with Jim in, you know, procurement that says that we have to do this? Or what about the legal department that says we're not allowed to do that? Or how do I deal with this personality? Or, you know, all the, the nitty gritty, which makes organizational change so difficult. Um, so coming up with that as a package and as a concept, that I'm really chuffed with. Not only um, because you know, it, it, it scratches a, a real itch, but the, it has made such a difference with the clients that I've worked with like that. It's been so satisfying being able to actually see things progressing because they've got somebody 
on their side and somebody backing them up. So often the people trying to create organizational change are like, yes, you've been given the job of digitally transforming this entire organization. Now just get on with it. And these poor people are like left floundering of, well, how the hell do you do that? So having a sounding board, having somebody to hold your hand through it, to commiserate with you, to cry with you, to get frustrated with you, I feel like it provides real value. Do you know what I mean? Rather than yeah. just another report. And, and it's really interesting you bring up their kind of like digital transformation. And I think one of the biggest things what we see in, in kind of corporate environments is we, we all like to sound a lot more clever than what we are. Like, you know, there's a thing yeah. of, for example, you used it kind of digital transformation. People see it as different things and it's, you know, the right and the wrong way. And actually what I think, what it sounds like to me as well is you can bring something what is digital transformation and very kind of up there and kind of nobody really knows where it is and bring it down and say, actually, this is what it is and this is what it looks mm. like. And that's the trouble. You get, you, you get senior management teams, right? And, and this isn't a criticism of senior management teams, but tr oftentimes when it comes to digital transformation, somebody in senior management has the realization that, look, digital has become absolutely crucial to our success, right? Um, as an organization. And, and they've had the realization that things need to change, that the business is not suited to working with digital best, right? you know, in the best way possible. And so they, and they've heard this term digital transformation. So they decide that this is a thing that needs to happen. And they, they, therefore ask you know somebody to run with this but the big problem is is they don't know what needs to be done right and even if you you hire in an outside consultant you know the the you know pricewaterhousecooper or whatever they'll come in and they'll write a report but the the real trick is how does that work for janice sitting in accounts or Frank that's, you know, working in the warehouse, or do you know what I mean? It's, it's how that works on a micro level. What, what do these people do differently in their jobs every day? And, and that is, and the trouble is, is that senior management can't answer that because they don't know enough about what digital transformation is. Your outside consultant can't really answer that because they don't know enough about Frank and Janice's jobs. And Janice and Frank can't answer that because they don't know enough about digital. So you're kind of caught in this awkward catch-22. And often it comes back and bites whoever's been made responsible of this change program, right? Setting aside the fact that everybody's sick of initiatives. Oh, it's another initiative in our company. I'll just quietly ignore that. So, so actually, there is a huge learning and development piece. There's a huge thing of saying... To, to Janice and Frank and, and, and those kinds of people, look, this is what digital is capable of. This is how consumers have changed. This is the kind of things that go wrong in an organization. Let's work together to work out what that then means for your job. So a big part, a big part of digital transformation is around the learning and development um, factors and an internal comms campaign effectively of winning hearts and minds that yes this is something we need to do yes this is this you do need to change because people hate changing why can't i just do what i've done for the last you know 30 years in my job i've always sent a press release and now you're telling me i have to do blogger engagement i mean what the hell's that <laughs> you know 
Yeah, and it, it's it's spot on. You you kind of brought it up, and as well talking about this comms and this marketing and this this idea, and this is kind of something what I've been talking about. Kind of the L and D team as a whole. I don't really. I'm not 100 percent sure an L and D team is needed anymore. And it might sound a little bit out there, but I think if you can get teams like marketing comms and you know your product design team and and whatever else working really tightly with each other, adding Google. And you know you might you might need someone from a coaching background or a mentoring background kind of thing, but realistically, I, I think you know they could probably come up with something just as good as L and D because is the example I use is like you know when you look at say product design and we get user insight and and actually you know let's just use it on the fi- the design thinking we go for empathize first and foremost walking in the user's shoes blah 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 you know and using things as such as as kind of you know a fly on a wall and, and watching how they do the day-to-day job and whatever else this is still really underutilized in LD. in fact I, i'd say I've, I've probably only seen it happen twice mm. um but you know if you look at someone say from you know i use service designer or a product designer whatever babe this is their bread and butter right this is like this is the day-to-day for them. Yes, it is. And and I agree with you to some degree, but I, I often, I, I'm constantly and utterly amazed how blinkered um, uh, people like user experience designers or marketers and people like that can be about their own colleagues, right? So take your average user experience designer, right? They'll do tons of research into... Um, their users, what motivates them, you know, this is end users, customers, you know, uh, uh, understanding how to to reach them and communicate with them clearly and all of the rest of it. And then in the next breath, they bitch and moan about their colleagues and how they're being held back by their colleagues from doing whatever needs to be done. It does not even occur to them to take the principles that they apply to end users all the time and apply it to their colleagues, to seek to understand their colleagues, what their colleagues are trying to achieve, what their motivations are, how you can help them. So although in principle I agree with what you're saying, I think it would take quite a mindset amongst these other parts to say, look at your own organization, right? Look at them and apply the principles that you've applied outside the organization internally within it. So I think either way, there's there's some change required. Either you've got a learning and development people that need to learn a new set of skills around internal comms, around user research, um, around design thinking, those kinds of stuff. Or alternatively, you're going to have to teach people to, you know, treat your internal audience as just as important as your external one. So either way, we can't avoid work. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. I think I think it is that. I think I think it's more about remixing the L and D function more than yeah. more than completely ripping it out. I think you know we yeah, talk. It's, it's introducing new skill sets and new ways of thinking into that. And and sorry, I cut across you, but that's um you know a lot of digital transformation ultimately comes down to creating cross cross functional teams and breaking down the kind of departmental silos that exist within organizations that really is very left over from the industrial revolution and that kind of conveyor belt where the customers passed from department to department. So, so, you know, modern business practices need to be cross collaborative working practices. And that applies as much to learning and development as it does to, you know, any other part of an organization. I just think, you know, it's interesting, you know, I could be sat in a corporate environment and across three seats across me could be the head of, I don't know, marketing 
or, or whatever. And I think, you know, they'll, they'll be doing things like segmentation. At the opposite side of the room, someone might be doing A-B testing. But mm. we never go, hmm, that could re- work really, really well for what I'm working on right now. And it and it's mm. interesting because I'm literally a conversation away. But yeah. you'd think in a lot of organisations that, you know, there's walls and walls of barriers you've got to knock down. And actually, it's just literally is that conversation. What is, you know, what is A-B testing and how can that work for me in, in this thing, what's happening over here? Yeah. But then you might not necessarily even know that they're doing A-B testing because why would they tell you? You know, that this is the trouble. You've got to have, you've got to have that curious mindset that desire to constantly know what other people are doing, you know, um, because otherwise you don't know what might be relevant to you, what might not be relevant to you. Every, every discipline does this. Every discipline makes this mistake. You know, user experience designers go to user experience conferences and listen to user experience experts, right? Well, they're never going to learn anything new that way then, are they? You know, they need to be going to learning and development conferences. You know, I've become I've become obsessed with things like psychology and marketing and and, you know, uh, 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 change management and all of these different things, half of which is not relevant to me, but half of it is. And it's only when you start breaking out of your filter bubble, as the cool kids say these days, that you you begin to discover that there are all of these other techniques, many of which can be translated and can be brought across. And I think maybe the reason that I've got that built into my DNA is because I was there at the beginning of the web, right, where there was no precedent. There was no history before me. There was no years and years of, well, this is how you do web design. Okay, so we had to look at architecture, print design, uh, you know, marketing. We had to look outside of our own discipline in order to be work out how we're going to do this thing called web. And and I think that's going away now because user experience design has been around for a while. And so we've got that legacy. So everybody just does what they did before. And, And learning and development would be another example of that. It's been around a long time. So you just do what the people did before rather than go okay, we need to look outside to bring fresh perspective into this. Yeah. I, I think it, I hope someone, always, someone once said to me, kind of, what, what questions do you ask? I'm like, why? Why is literally the best question you can ask? Mm. Like, why are we doing that? Why are you doing that? What is this? Kind of, it becomes into, and that curious mindset is something what I've got, but it, it can also be a pain. I, I find yeah. it, it's also the thing where, I have 10,000 ideas going on in my mind and, you know, I'm connect, connecting dots from here to there and, and going, hmm, okay, can you do it? And I guess that's, you know, I do this quarterly meetup and the idea is that, you know, if you're in product design, come over to our meetup and you can learn about learning development. Yeah. It's kind of... But I tell you, sorry. No, go for it. Carry on, I'll stop interrupting you. I get excited. That's my <laughs> no, problem. no, no, go for it, but I'll go for it. Well, what I was going to say is, I think one of the big advantages that I have in that curiosity is that I've been given all the tools to find out what other people do. 
right? Because that's what you do, both as a user experience designer, you've got to learn about your end users, but also as a consultant, you have to spend your learn your time wrapping your head around new new organizations. So, you know, if somebody comes to you and you said, they say, well, what questions should I ask? Well, why is a great example? And there's actually a technique called the five whys, right? Where you ask why, but then when they answer you, you ask why again, and you keep digging and digging and getting deeper and deeper into what their underlying motivations are. And that's a great way of discovering new stuff, right? But there are other techniques. There's techniques like um, in-field studies, where you actually, which originally was applied to obviously end customers, where you would go and you would see where the customer interacted with your product and service naturally. But there are, you know, you can apply that to anything. So for example, I've done infield studies within house teams where I've gone and spent a day following a finance person around, right? And we, this, is, this isn't specific to user experience. The idea of work shadowing has been around for years where you go and watch other people. You know, there's a lot of companies where you join the company and the first thing you do is go and, um, you know, uh, sit with um, on customer service and actually answer customer questions when they ring up because it's a great way of getting to know a business. So when's the last time you did that? When did you go and spend time with other colleagues? And then, of course, there are things like... Um, you know, you can do empathy mapping or, or persona uh, journeys for for internal groups and 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 start understanding how they work. And you can run workshops around this. So there are lots of ways of of kind of understanding other people's jobs and unpacking what they do. And that's when you find those nuggets that you can use. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Kind of one of the one of the biggest things in LD right now is kind of actually learning as a thing so so you know necessarily i don't need to so i use this example like you don't need to know how to change the, look back, the light bulb on your car until your light bulb goes and then the chances are once your light bulb goes you'll youtube find out how to replace your light bulb and then you'll forget that knowledge until your light bulb goes again and a lot of time there's this learning elimination where actually i don't need to tell you how to do a light bulb i just need to be able to direct you in this position where you know where you can retrieve that knowledge from and mm. I'm working with a lot of clients who have worked in the past. It's really interesting when you really, you know, so when you use a tool like the five whys or you can kind of do this empathy mapping or this journey mapping. And it's interesting once you get in there and you kind of get down, what what the initial thing is, is maybe they want a, a, a platform. Actually, once you strip it right back, all they want is a place, a community, a collaboration. And yeah. it, it all comes down. And I use this term, it's consumer grade experience because we we have this thing in the moment where work experience is different to outside of work experience and yeah that should be one thing it shouldn't be separate yeah and that's the trouble i mean one of the big the big frustrations that you know i work with a lot of large corporates and they are constantly hogtied by the tools and experience that they have within their organization you know this is why this is why digital disruption happens where a young upstart company comes in they do things differently and and you know disrupt an entire sector so you, you know the likes of uber netflix those kinds of companies the reason that they are able to achieve what they did is not because um they had um 
anything special or anything different. It's that they were able to move in a much more agile way because they weren't constrained by some legacy technology system or some legacy way of thinking that we must do things this way. I mean, a classic example is I'm working with a large pharmaceutical company at the moment. Um, you know, and, and even to do something as simple as, I don't know, um, release a blog post, right? Oh, no, let me give you an even better example, right? So I was involved with an organization. I won't say who they were, right? I was involved with an organization to help them undertake digital transformation. The leadership had decided that digital transformation was incredibly important. They'd made it their number one priority for the, for the organization, but nothing was happening, right? It wasn't taking hold. So I came in and we, we, ha- we put together a, a whole partly a learning and development package, but partly an internal comms package where we were going to work out, you know, how do we bring people on this journey with us? How do we win their hearts and minds? And a small, tiny part of that was we were going to throw together a blog, all right? And we were going to um, throw up onto this blog bits of inspiration, you know, of, of, of you know, stuff that, that was relevant that people could, you know, check into, they'd get an email newsletter that would encourage them to go to the blog and read a load of stuff. And it was, it was a whole thing we were going to do. Um, and, and they were like, Oh, but creating a blog is difficult. I said, no, 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 we'll just use Squarespace or something like that to put it on live. I could, I could do it in 10 minutes. We could have it up and running. It's only for an internal audience anyway, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll lock it away. So only an internal audience can view it. Uh, oh, yeah, that's great. Oh, oh, but let us do it because otherwise it's going to end up on your credit card. And you, you know, you're going to have to invoice us for it. Two weeks later, nothing had happened. N- nobody had come back to me over it. So, so I chased and said, what happened to, the, to this, um, this blog? And they said to me, oh, well, IT were worried about it uh, from a security point of view. Finance wanted to be invoiced rather than pay on a credit card. Legal were worried about where the data was going to be held. And it just got really complicated. Now, I told this story at a training session that I was running with the company about the, the, the problems of culture and legacy and systems and departments to use it to demonstrate this. And I got off the stage and this woman made a beeline for me and she was hacked off and she was angry at me. She came over to me and said, I was the one that blocked it from IT. And I said, oh, I'm sorry to hear about that. What, why did you feel it was a security threat? Well, if it had got hacked by ISIS, they could have covered it with propaganda. And, and, I said to her, one, it was an internal blog, so nobody outside of the company would have seen that anyway. But two, you know, I said, what's the likelihood of that happening? Um, and, but for, for her, and this is where it all gets so complicated, right? For her, the likelihood didn't matter because the consequences were so high and the cost of saying no was so low. For her, if it had happened, she would have got fired if she hadn't have blocked it, okay? But, for, but she didn't care, therefore, that it benefited the company as a whole because she was being judged purely on security. So things like remunerations and appraisals and all of this gets pulled into the mix as well. So companies end up getting tied up in their own culture because, oh, we can't do that because, you know, I'm being appraised on this, or you can't do that because that's not our system. So I'm picking all of this kind of stuff. It's incredibly complicated. And this way it becomes this kind of system thinking kind of 
it just becomes, you know, the business ends up becoming its own bottleneck for the, the change what it wants to see. And and, yeah. and and we see it a lot of times in kind of, um, you know, I, I've seen it when working with my clients, kind of this thing of actually we want to be like Spotify. I'm like, you, you're never going to be like Spotify because no. Spotify's problems is different to yours. And what they're doing there has probably been embedded from them from the get-go. And, you know, they're fresh away working and they haven't got this legacy kind of system, this hierarchy kind of just long, dragged out process for just a small change. And it becomes, it, it starts becoming that thing of you have great you have great minds in big businesses what end up becoming to this point where they're like, my ideas, my thoughts, my whatever, just can't get through this thick sludge of what is the corporate kind of, you know, the system, so to speak. So then we end up fleeing and going elsewhere and, and joining in maybe a startup, maybe whatnot. And I just think it's, it's a sad, it's a sad state of affairs, really. Mm. And that's uh, one one way of addressing that is you 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 create a new culture. You need to um, to 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 um, create a place for a new culture to to just you know just state if that makes sense. So a lot of organisations then create innovation teams, right? And and I am actually I do think innovation teams have a place where you 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 separate them out, you protect them from the rest of the organization say essentially you can do what you want over here you know you're almost an independent business the 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 problem then comes with innovation teams is where they're not integrated back to into the business um and they're they're so removed from it that they never they never make it back in so so i've worked with a client um, before that ended up creating a very successful innovation team that created a really successful product. And in the end, that product was just, they left the organizer, you know, it was left as a separate company because they could never work out how to, to bring it back in because it was run independently for too long. You know, so if you're going to have an innovation team, it, it needs to be as much a, a communication and interaction with the rest of the business. Otherwise, you're just creating another business silo. Yeah, it, and it kind of it kind of leads me to a question. Um, I had a guest on here a couple of weeks ago, Paul Fryer. Um, he's he's he was the one who actually put me onto you over you know right. many moons ago. Um, and he asked me to ask you a question actually. And he said, "What yeah? what is your top tips to get internal buying from for for a mm. project?" Um, I, 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 this is a, the reason I'm finding this hard to answer is I created a set of cards a while back with fifty two. Um, uh, methods to to um, win hearts and minds within an organization. Um, so I'm having trouble picking one. I, I think it's got to be, um, you've got to start with a proof of concept, right? Because, because things get very complicated very quickly, as we've already shown, right? Um, you, you get, the, the cost then becomes incredibly high of change, right? Because you've got to unpick everything from policies to procedures to working practices to remuneration packages to, you know, business silos, the whole world. It becomes so big and so complicated that you don't, it doesn't ever happen. So you've got to start by creating a vision and a proof of concept that wins people over emotionally um, and intellectually. So I'll give you an example of this, right? There was a group within Disney 
that wanted to implement um, and uh, improve the user experience um, in the parks, Disney parks, using um, technology. So they wanted to give every person that came into the park a, a band that they wore around their wrist with an RDF chip in. And this RDF chip was um, intended to uh, do, do loads of things. It'll let you into your hotel room. It'll allow you to pay for things um, throughout the park. But it also had some magical qualities to it as well. So, for example, they would know where every person in the park was, right? And they would know via your mobile app that it was your daughter, um, your daughter's birthday and that her favorite character in the park was Cinderella. And so Cinderella could get a notification in her ear saying it's your daughter's birthday. This is her name. This is where she is in the park. Go and wish her a happy birthday. Here's a picture of her, right? So it'd do things like that. You could order your food for the cafe and you would go to the cafe, um, go to the restaurant and, you, and they would detect that you're working towards it. They would start your food preparing. As you walked up, the concierge would greet you by name because they know who you are. You could sit anywhere in the restaurant and they'd be able to bring the food to your table immediately because they know where you are in the restaurant. And so it went on. So it was a great idea. The problem with it is it meant changing every hotel door. It meant upgrading everybody's systems. It meant you know changing the, the payment system. It was going to cost Disney about a billion dollars, right? So it's an enormous investment even for a company like um, Disney. So what they did is they began with a proof of concept. They took a, a warehouse in, in the Disney back lot and they built a mock-up of a park made of balsa wood and, and, uh, and people pretending to be park you know, um, uh, staff. And they brought in users and they got their response to it and they tried them out. Then they brought in senior management, got them to try out, you know, take your paper wristband you've got on that's supposed to be the thing and walk up to your hotel door, press it against the door. And then someone behind the door goes beep and opens it to show you what the experience would be like. And they trialed it and they tested it and they got people excited about it. So this idea of kind of rapid prototyping and, and, uh, and uh, proof of concepts I think is a great way because it it create, gives you hard data on whether people want this thing, but it also excites internal members of staff because they can they know what the end goal is. If you say we're going to digitally transform, that is woolly. It means nothing. But if you show them what that means, then they can imagine it. Then they know where they're going and they know what they have to do to get there. So... Uh, Disney fascinate me. So I mean, if someone yeah. if someone said to me you can go and study Disney for three months and look at how they build the theme parks, I'm I'm trying to get somebody on here to talk to me about kind of you know theme park design and stuff like that because mm -hmm. you know when you look at somewhere like Camelot, Alton Towers, the fact that the experience starts you know before you even come in, but even in the queue, yeah. the queue within yeah. the ride, the experience is already there, it's already happening, and this yeah. this fascinates me. Um, mm. But it, it reminds me of um, a story what I was reading a couple of weeks ago, and it was about a ship what's took that kind of approach. You know what you mentioned with Disney? And it, it was yeah. this this uber-personalized approach, but actually there was... Um, and and we, we got talking, it was kind of like, to have this uber-personalized uber approach, there's a balance of how much... You know, people don't want to give the data, but they want this personalized approach. And I think mm. that's that's one of the biggest problems we're seeing right now is this... I want this personalized experience. You know, we see it in everything we do. 
you know, build a bear, for example. You don't go to build a bear to to get a teddy bear. You go for the experience of picking the picking the wool, picking the name, getting a certificate, blah 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 blah. But you know, I think I think this handing over this data is going to be a tricky one. You know, and, and people's going to have to get red. Very it. much how it's communicated, in my opinion. You know, it, it's uh, you know too often we just ask for data. And we don't explain what that data is going to be used for or why it's going to improve their experience. We don't, we don't try and, right. When we, when we sell something, we want money from people. We're very good at explaining why they should give us their money. We're not very good at explaining why they should give us our data. Um, and often there is a fear of it being misused. Um, and we need to make strong promises as well about what we're going to do with that data. I'll give you an example, an internal example, right, of an organization. Um, I, one of my, my favorite experiences is uh, by a, a logistics delivery company called DPD, right? DPD deliver packages to my house every now and again. And their experience is great because they, they tell me you know, you've got this one hour slot and they tell me that the day before. And then on the day, I can actually track the driver going around and um, uh, and actually, you know, how many stops they've got before my house. So if I want to, you know, pop and have a pee, you know, I know the doorbell's not going to ring in the middle. You know what I mean? So so it gives me a lot of control as a consumer. Now, I was running a workshop where there were um, people from uh, the Royal Mail there. Um, and I told this story and they said that would never happen at the Royal Mail. And I said, well, why not? Why, why couldn't you, you know, add GPS trackers to, to your vehicles and do that? The unions won't allow it, right? Why? Because they're worried that we would be tracked, right? And that the, 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 the drivers would start to be, you know, if they took a fag break or whatever, management were going to tell them off. But I would argue that 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 is simply because there hasn't been, A, it hasn't been sold well enough internally, and B, there hasn't been enough checks and balances. There haven't been, you know, concrete um, promises that we will never use it for these purposes. And if we do, you know, these will be the consequences on our heads for doing that. Um, and, and that's the problem is, I think a lot of times there is a lack of, um, there is a lack of trust, whether it be trust between a company and the consumer or a company and its employees, and, and there is an expectation from the company side that that trust is just there, and it isn't. And we need to earn that right. We need to earn the trust of people. Um, and that takes time, and it takes a solid commitments. Hmm. It's, it's an interesting one. I think it, it, is, it is that, you know, part of your narrative and your story behind why you want that becomes actually probably one of the most fundamental points before you even ask for it right it's it's storytelling yeah. at, at its best mm. but i guess i guess moving on a little bit kind of to to kind of a little bit a little bit about what shapes you i guess what's mm. let's pretend you've just bought a billboard um and it's outside the stadium and a million people are going to come out of the stadium and we're going to see this billboard what message would you put on there God, blooming heck, that's a good one. Truth, yeah, I know we've been talking from a business perspective. Um, I think I would put something around the subject 
of empathy and and the ability to see the world from other people's perspective because i feel that that is what is almost globally lacking at this point right everybody whether whether you're talking about an individual um company and the the kind of conflicts and culture you get there or whether you you're talking about the kind of global politics that we're seeing there's this polarization that anybody who disagrees with you is the enemy right so um you know routinely now you know in the uk at the moment we we obviously we're very divided over this whole brexit thing right and i'm a you know i'll be frank i'm a, a staunch remainer right i would have you know stayed in the european union but i take real exception to people like nigel farage who i dislike his politics a lot but i take real uh, um, exception to him being called a nazi right he's not a nazi he's just a man that disagrees with me do you know what i mean and and we become very polarized as a society and i think we've totally lost the the the, the ability to to understand other people's motivations understand what leads them to the to the place they're at and even if i completely disagree with them right on every uh, every level that doesn't i still should be able to understand their perspective and where they're coming from and having that ability to do that is is not only would make the world better at a kind of macro level but it makes your relationships better it you know both personally and in work as well you know we were talking earlier at the the big one right the big one in my kind of sector is the designer developer relationship right they hate one another right because they're very different characters and they they see the world in very different ways but both viewpoints are perfectly valid they're just coming at things from a different perspective another one is i hear all the time web designers complaining about their clients that their clients are stupid no they're not they're just smart in different things to you they come at the world from a different perspective so i think it'd be summing along those lines that i put on the billboard is that at all what you were after? Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. It's like it's, okay. it's perfectly fine. But I guess this kind of leads me on to the next question then. So when we look at, say, something like social media, do you think it's a net positive or a net negative to society? Oh. I am... When I, You remember I said I, I was uh, an intern at IBM? Yeah. So I spent a year at IBM and then went back to finish my degree before going back to IBM again. And I came back... Um, from that first year with IBM, when the web was just beginning to take off, and I was so excited, right? Um, and I wrote my dissertation on the the benefits of how um, the the internet could change society for the better, right? Um, how it gave a voice to people that didn't previously have a voice, that it gave. Um, access to those that previously you know are disabled or housebound or things like that and i in those early days i was a part of what we called then virtual communities before social media and that kind of stuff existed and i made friends at such a deep level around the world i was exposed to cultures and people that i would never have previously known right you know, I had friends in China and Iran and Iraq and places like that. 
you know, that I would never have been exposed to otherwise. And, and I had such hope for the internet. And if I'm honest with you, I am deeply hurt and disappointed by what the internet has cut has become. Um, and it, it, and I shouldn't be surprised really, because I think any technology just reflects back society. Um, but I think that social media has fundamentally polarized society and has, has reinforced this kind of um, extremist attitude um, and confrontational attitude, particularly Twitter, which again was, you know, I was, I was in the first couple of thousand people on Twitter and I loved it in the early days. But, you know, I think it is, it is substantially undermined our society at the moment. Now, your question was, is it still a net benefit? I don't think it's either a benefit or a curse. It's how it's used it, how you use it, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's the old, you can talk the same way about something like guns, you know. It, 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 it's how you, you perceive them. You know, it can be used for defense. It can be used to keep your, your country safe or whatever else, but it can also be used. I, I honestly can't answer that question. I can't, we can't turn back time. It is what it is, but it does make me sad. It really does. Okay. So maybe let's turn this on yourself. So um, this, this question is pretty deep, Paul. So do you Sorry. even like yourself? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I do actually. Um, it's very easy to look at yourself and you focus on the negative elements of your, yourself, right? Um, and, and sure, I do the same, right? So I'm very loud and I'm very brash and I could be a bit insensitive at times. Um, and, um, uh, but you can look at those same characteristics and you, you've got to ask yourself, well, if I took those elements away from me, who would I be then? And actually, you, or, or more precisely, what would you lose? Okay. So, so if I wasn't brash and loud and slightly insensitive, well, I couldn't inspire people. I couldn't excite people like I do at the moment. I had a client say to me once, how can I say no to you, Paul? It'd be like kicking a puppy because my <laughs> brashness and my uh, excitement and my enthusiasm and my loudness are all interconnected. Um, you know, and even my insensitivity, there are times when you do need to plow on, right? You can't change the world yeah, or even a company or, or, or a situation without going, okay, I know that I'm going to upset my people slightly in this situation, but it needs to be done or, or there is a greater good in it. So I, I think it's very easy to focus on your negatives and just see them as negatives. But I think every negative has a positive side to it, you know, and, and has some element. And I think what I like myself a lot more now than I did in the past, simply because I'm much more self-aware of my weaknesses. Um, and I think as by being aware of them, you, you begin to learn when you need to temper them and when you need to lead into those things. Um, and so, yeah, I think so. I think I'm pretty, pretty happy 
generally. Okay. What about you? Who has anybody asked you this question? Yeah, yeah. Actually, it was yesterday, which I wasn't oh, ready right. for. Um, Did you answer on the show, or was that yeah. just in personal life? Yeah, no, no. Okay. I, I answered it on the show. It was. Um, okay, I won't get yourself. To, I won't get you to repeat it then. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, <laughs> I was not ready for it. Trust me, I was not ready. Um, no, I know. It's a hard question. But I guess kind of one of the other things is kind of knowing about what shapes you and your ideas. And, and if I was to ask you what book, if you were to give a gift of a book to five people, what one book would it be? And this can be maybe the book what you think five people should definitely read, or maybe it's a book what's changed you and your personal mindset and you think everybody should read it. Wow. Oh, I've read so many good books. Um <sighs> And different books have have helped me in different ways. Um, So there's David Allen's Getting Things Done, which is a productivity book. Um, And that one of my big weaknesses is anxiety. I worry about everything. I worry when I'm not, I don't feel in control. And David Allen's book on called Getting Things Done enabled me to get that sense of control in my life and has been very beneficial. Um, So that's been very good. Um, I've read various books about aspects of psychology that I think have been hugely helpful. Um, and it depends. I mean, what am I, am I recommending a book for people's lives or for their, 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 uh, their, you know, work life or is there any frame of reference or are you just going to leave me floundering at this point? Trying reckon, to think of something. Yeah, I think maybe, Oh, okay. <laughs> let's, let's make it a little bit easier. So maybe you can recommend two, one personal and one professional. Okay. Do you know what? I think I'm going to go for one that does both after just... You, you tried to make it easier and I've gone back on it. I, it's a book that, that I'm still reading, which is a cheat, really. Um, and it's not an easy book to read um, because it's quite heavy going. And it's a book called Thinking Fast and Slow, right? Ooh, good book. And it's, it, it's... Have you read it? Yes, yes. Yeah. And it's a book on psychology, right, written by a Nobel Prize winner. Um, and and it's, it's fairly heavy going, some of the, the psychology and, uh, and stuff that he talks about. But I, I found it a very good book. And I found it a very good book for multiple reasons. One is it's helped me to know myself much better, to understand kind of fundamental ways that I react in different situations. But it's also helped me to understand other people much better as well. And in particular, what motivates people and how people go about making decisions, right? Um, And I I won't get into it too much now, um, but he basically introduces two concepts uh, or two systems, he calls them, system one and system two, which is essentially your kind of instinctual reactive system being system one and your conscious intellectual system being system two. And he kind of breaks these down and he explains why, you know, um, you know, uh, well, all kinds of things, why there's more chance of us believing if something is something, if it's written in a bold typeface or why we, um, you know, judges are more likely to deny parole before lunchtime. And, you know, all of these kinds of weird little quirks of human behavior. Um, and it is quite, it, it helps make a lot more sense of the world and <laughs> the people that live in it, I think is the only way I could describe it. What was your feelings about it? So my feelings was, it was a good book, pretty similar to yours. Um, it was more kind of a fact of system one, system two was quite, was quite interesting. Um, yeah. and kind of just the fact of 
awareness to system one and system two if that makes sense um mm. you know when we, when we i think he, he he gets in there and talks about kind of um kind of more around snap judgments and um you know how how the mind makes these quick decisions even when it kind of lacks enough information to make that decision um mm. but i i enjoyed it i enjoyed it i preferred the other book which i always get mixed up with that and the other one is black box thinking have you read that one no, I haven't. That sounds good. Yeah, Black Box think, Thinking is awesome. Um, and oh, just okay. the case study, studies that are in it are, are really good as well. Um, but I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I found it very similar to kind of you. It was a bit... I, I didn't do it in kind of, you know, over a week. It was in and out, lots of in and outs on it rather than... Yeah. Um, I think at the same time I was reading that, I was reading Nudge as well. Have you read that book? That's an excellent book. So um, That's a lot more accessible, that yeah. one. Yeah. Um, but again, still really, really interesting book. You know, I, I definitely, you know, that's another one that I would definitely recommend. Yeah. The trouble is the world's full of too many good books and that's the downside of the internet information overload. Oh, this word. is it. Like one, I'm another great book. Aware of all these things. Well, I think the best book what I've read this year was The Power of Moments. Have you read that? No, I haven't. Oh, no. that's, that's a beautiful book. Um, See, stop mentioning books. You're just <laughs> making my life more difficult by giving me all these books that that I should read. I mean, there's, there's, oh, there's so many. Have you read? Um, oh, the the one from the guy um, that runs. Um, oh, people that do like Toy Story. What's the name? Oh, of that is it Creative Ink? Yes, Creative Ink. That's the name of the book. Yeah. That's another great book. Yes, it that's is. A totally different type of book again. So I'm just scrolling through my list of books now. So this could go on forever. <laughs> it's just so many, so many good things. And I think it's interesting, yeah. right? Kind of listen to our books, but not necessarily instantly direct to the thing what we do. But this this goes no. back to that thing what you're saying about this curiosity and and looking at other industries and looking at how they do things and actually what is a value and what can connect to dot in in what I'm doing and what what. Probably yeah. isn't. I mean, I read a, another book. See, it, just going through some of the, the weird books I've got. Um, I've read a Physics of the Future by Mitch Okaka, um, Okaku or whatever his name is, um, which was nothing whatsoever to do with my career, but really inspired me. Um, you know, so that's, you know, there's just hundreds of them, aren't there? These, these just kind of inspirational um books that just get your mind thinking what's the, the the really famous one um tipping point you know the the books like that as well they're not you don't go away with i'm now going to do this this and this because i've read this book but it it seeps into your consciousness and starts influencing the way you view the world and think about things yeah that's what a good book should do in my opinion yeah definitely kind of just switch on that awareness mm. so i guess two more questions and then i think we're done paul um Cool. And and this one's probably this one's more of a deeper one. So I guess within my industry oh, there's because the the whole question about do I like myself wasn't deep enough. <laughs> okay, this might be easy then. This might be really easy actually. Oh. But all right, go. But in my industry there's um there's an element of my industry called e learning, which is best best way to describe yeah. it is digital learning. And it yeah. it gets a bit of a kick in. Um and the reason yeah. behind that is a lot of times they're used in a very dull context of compliance and it's about getting people to tick that box say, yes, I know how to put a fire out or whatnot or GDPR or exit. Yeah. But yeah, actually yeah. what we find is there's no learning what comes out of it. There's no 
nothing happens, but it's just a tick box exercise. And actually, yeah. one of the things which I've been playing around with probably for a couple of months now and, and chatting with a few people is actually how can we make e-learning better by working with, say, UX designers or UI designers yeah. or whatever. But what five tips would you give to someone who's in who's in um who's doing e-learning and to make it much more engaging, knowing full well that the, the context is the person is either going to be in front of a mobile device or in front of a PC. Yeah. So, I mean, for a start, I've kind of got a bit of an objection to the term e-learning anyway, because it's like, it's like people who talk about digital transformation. It's transformation. It's business change. You know, e-learning is learning. You know, it's communicating information. In, does it really matter? Um, and actually, I'm a huge fan of, of, of digital channels for learning. Um, because I think they've got a lot of advantages, you know, over other forms of learning. Um, so uh, I think it also depends on the type of information that you're communicating. You know, you can't make compliance stuff interesting, right? Nobody, and it is going to be a, dick, a, a, a tick boxing, a, a, a box ticking exercise. You know, you're never, you're never going to get people to engage with that kind of stuff right? It's just not going to happen. But that said, I think there's a lot of potential for using digital channels for learning. You know, for example, one of the things I always think is absolutely absurd, right, is that organizations will regularly run, they'll pay me to go in and run a training session at their organization, right? So I go into a room, I sit down with, you know, well, I'm going into um, a company next week, and they've got 90 people going to come and listen to me run a workshop right and when you've got 90 people in the room there's only so much level of interaction you, you can get into so it's not going to be like you know real hands-on stuff okay and yet I said to them well why don't we create a, a series of self-learning videos where people could work through this at their own pace in their own time right rather than taking 90 people all having to get a you know a date fixed in their calendar for me to do this and then also you've got it there forever so as new members of staff join you'll still have that material could I get them to do that they would much prefer me just to come in and sit in a room and talk with a group of people so so I actually think so you know using video is a great thing using audio like this because suddenly all of that content becomes available you know, in environments where normally, you know, uh, it wouldn't be accessible to you because you're, you know, you're in the gym or you're doing your commute or whatever else you can, you can communicate all that information there as well. I think as, uh, and so, so use different mediums is, is one thing. Um, another thing I would talk about is, is write it like a human being, right? What is it whenever we talk about, um, we're talking about as soon as we go professional and corporate, a whole language changes. We would never speak to someone like we do in, in the documentation we put out at work. Why is that? Why can't it be friendly? Why can't it be conversational? You know, and my rule of thumb is if you can't read it out loud to your mate in the pub with a straight face, then it's probably not right. Right. You know, take, for example, policies. Um, uh, uh, privacy policies, right? Every website's got to have a privacy policy. So I had to do a privacy policy for my website, right? Oh, you know, and I looked at everybody else's privacy policies and I thought, oh my word, this is awful. So in the end, I wrote a plain English 
privacy policy, right? And it starts off, I haven't created this page to conform with some piece of legislation or cover my backside. I've written it so you know exactly what information I have on you and how I use it. That's, you know, if you want to engage with people, that's how you write, okay? Another thing that I would say is if you're going to be using, so what are we up to? This is number three. If we're going to be using digital channels, you need to recognize that people don't read anything on the internet, no matter how engaging it is. And, you know, uh, they scan it. So anything that you create, any documentation you create, avoid big blocks of text. If you actually want people to read it, avoid big blocks of text, right? Break it up with bullets and headings and pull out quotes and that kind of stuff, right? just to make it more accessible and more readable. Um, do you know, I think I'm going to stop with those three. I think, you know, if you just do that, that's a, that's a great starting point. I guess another thing that you would, um, you would have to do is think about how you organize that information. A lot of this information ends up on an intranet, which is, uh, as I describe it, where good content goes to die. Um, you know, intranets are universally terrible, and that's almost always because it's really hard to find anything on an intranet because it's all buried in different departmental silos and you have to know where to look. If you're a new employee, you're stuffed on an intranet um, and it's full of jargon and all of this kind of stuff. So, so you know, applying, you're doing some user testing, card sorting exercises uh, so you understand people's mental model um, and how they want to approach things and what, what their top tasks are, what the m pieces of information people are going to look up most, most often. Um, and then, so what's that? That's four. Let's stop there. Okay. I'll do four. I think, I think four is, I think there's four good pieces of knowledge there for sure, Paul. So definitely thank you very much for that. So I guess got, kind of coming back full circle now and at, at the start of the, the podcast, I asked you, you know, what is it you wanted to be when you was ordering? You mentioned a graphic designer and as you know, Paul, mm. we never stop developing. We never stop growing. So if I was to say to you, Paul, what do you want to be when you grow older? What would you say now? I have this desire. I have a, I, I'm, I'm someone that looks to the future and uh, quite a lot. Um, and I want to be doing two things that are interrelated to one another. Well, they're, 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 they're basically the same thing, but it works in slightly different ways. I, I want to get to the point where I'm sitting as a non-executive on a range of different, uh, non-executive director on a range of different companies, advising them on customer experience and digital, right? So many companies now are kind of realizing that digital and customer experience are absolutely crucial to their organizational success, but they can, you know, for whatever reason, they don't end up with full-time people looking at those roles right so you know one alternative to ensure that that has the priority that it needs to is that you would have an exec a board member who um is bringing that perspective bringing that expertise and i would love to do that okay but i want to do it for two different types of organizations one i want to do it for corporate organizations where i want to charge them an obscene amount of money for me to do that and then <laughs> My other half of my time, I want to do exactly the same job, but for charities, right? Where I do it for free, right? And actually, I've already started to do that. So I make it clear on my site that if, you, if you're a corporate organization, I'm going to charge you a premium so I can discount the work that I do with charitable organizations. And if you look at my client list, there's quite a few charities on it. And it, I, at the moment, I'm not at the point where I can do all the charity stuff for free. 
but that's the kind of direction that I'm heading. That's that's the master plan anyway. Okay, brilliant. So so I guess um, at the start I asked you kind of four numbers. These four numbers tally up to a list of random items. So okay. the idea, Paul, is basically you're on a beach. Well, no, not a beach, a desert island, and you have these four items, and you have okay. a toothpick. Um, sorry, toothpaste, face wash, a boombox, and a screw. What are you doing with these four items? Face wash, boombox. What yeah. are we in the eighties? <laughs> no. um, and a screw. Yeah. And I want a desert island. That's right. I'm going to die. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do with those four items. I, I can't see any way of surviving with just those items. I, you know, I'm not MacGyver. And also, I'm deeply impractical. Um, um, uh, impractical? Whatever. So, so, for example, I'm sure if I was MacGyver, I could turn that boombox into a radio transmitter using the screw to get into it. And that, you know, that, that I would save my life that way. Um, and that probably I could live off of the toothpaste until I'm rescued. But to be honest, um, I'm, I'm just going to go with death. I think <laughs> let's, let's be realistic about it. Awesome. So, Paul, where can people find out a little bit more about what you're up to? I mean, where can they get your books? Where can they get your podcasts, et cetera? Uh, but the best thing to do is just to go to uh, boagworld.com, B-O-A-G world.com. Um, and you can, on um, my navigation is split into two Boag World and Boag Works, and you'll find in under Boag World all my podcasts, my blogs. I've been blogging for over 13 years now, um, books, that kind of stuff. And under Boag Works, it'll be the professional services I offer the training, the strategy, the UX optimization, mentorship, that kind of thing. So, yeah, um, and also it's worth saying that I've got a, a newsletter that um, is worth signing up for. Um, because I put out, you know, do this kind of thing, basically share my random thoughts every, every couple of weeks. And I'm very regimented. So I'm always putting out new content every week. So yeah, it's not one of those periodic blogs where you blog once every two years. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome, Paul. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. No problem. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, yeah, good luck with the, the show. Cheers, Paul. I'll catch you later. 